This is episode 1-1 of Free is in Freedom for Tuesday, June 7th, 2011 of The Common Era. Well, welcome everybody to another episode of Free is in Freedom, and uh, I have a I have a very special co-host again. Dan, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Um, yeah, sorry, I was wondering what I thought you were going to say something else about that. I don't know about very special. It depends on your definition of the word special, I suppose. Um, yeah, it's great, great to be here again. Um, I was curious actually because you um, last time we spoke a couple of weeks ago, you were preparing for uh, Karen's wedding that evening. So how did it all go? Was did it all go okay? Oh yeah, it went fine. She had uh, she had the wedding. There was no uh, no gate crashers uh, from the internet uh, who saw her invitation and decided to show up. It was all people who were supposed to be there. It looked <laughs> like, uh, and uh, and yeah, it was it was it was good to to go. I it started uh, kind of late for me. I go to bed early, so uh, so I ended up leaving relatively early because it started at uh, I think seven thirty. And so by the time we finished dinner, it was, it was, and all, it was uh, almost, uh, 1130. So wow. I was just like, well, I, I need to get out of here. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, Karen's a late person. So I assume they, uh, they, they skewed their wedding time for, to, to, for a late night. Uh, so I don't know how late it went. Uh, I left relatively early. Um, I stayed for dinner and dessert and yeah. um, they didn't have a cake actually. That was interesting. They, they just had dessert, which I think was good. I mean, the whole, the whole cake thing, especially in the U.S., there's this, this whole like, I, I don't know what to call it. It's not really a tradition. It's more, it's, it's more, uh, yeah. It's, I mean, basically it's more, it's more, uh, base, uh, and, uh, and sort of vulgar than a tradition, like this thing with the cake and the bring it out. And then the, the bride and groom like shove it in each other's faces. And this, it's like a thing people do. And it's really stupid at weddings. I hate when people do that. So <laughs> I actually really like the Karen's wedding didn't do any of that stuff. It was a very, uh, very classy event. Um, so, so yeah, it was, it was good. I was, I was glad, glad to be invited and, and glad to go. My wife and I went and, and so, uh, yeah, it all worked out. And I think, uh, Karen is still away. Uh, she's been away, uh, um, since the wedding. So, uh, so you're here to, uh, to, to graciously fill in and, uh, and, and be the co-host on Freeze and Freedom. I am, but I think, I think she'll be back next time. So anybody who's missing, uh, missing Karen's voice on the show will, will hopefully be able to, uh, to get, get, hear that again next time, I think. Yeah, that's true. I don't think she ran away permanently. Uh, yeah. It was uh, just 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 for after the wedding. So uh, so so she'll she'll be, she'll be back for the next show. I'm sure. Brilliant. Yeah, it sounds good. And um, we'll have people posting sightings on the internet now. You know, unconfirmed news <laughs> that she's been seen wherever. <laughs> Should be cool. Um, so yeah, we're, we're going to do something slightly different, aren't we? Um, because well, slightly different for this show anyway. In that uh, we were kind of talking through through the, over the last couple of weeks about what we could discuss uh, and so on and, and fortunately for us there's as often seems to happen in the free software open source world that some news some fairly big news has come up that we we can talk about yeah and and so karen and i tend i mean occasionally we've uh talked about a, a recent topic or something that's going on but it's really not been our tendency to do a news story 
or, or, or current events and analyze them. I mean, we have done it on occasion, but it's not really our typical thing. But, but uh, because of your experience with Linux Outlaws, you've done a lot of that. And so, and so uh, I think it was a good idea for, for the show that you're, you're joining me as the co-presenter uh, to, to chase some of the stories and, and sort of relate to what the kinds of topics that we talk about on Freedom and Freedom, the things like uh, uh, licensing and policies for projects and those sorts of things. So, so uh, we've picked a couple of topics, I think, that are good that, that we can talk about. So, uh, so the first one was, uh, was your idea. So do you want to sort of introduce it for the listeners? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, well, I, I suppose to give the backstory, I got, um, I, I got a couple of emails, actually, from various different people um, through my uh, personal email from people I think who'd, who'd either watched or listened to Floss Weekly and had ideas for starting um, new projects. Uh, in one case, it was a hardware project. They wanted to start an open hardware project and another guy who wanted to start a free software project and they asking me for advice. And really, I'm not the guy to give advice on that. Given the uh, the kind of wider context of like, like the news at the moment with uh, CentOS, which is, uh, I'm sure everyone listening to this will know, it's a fairly technical audience, but it's a, a community repackaged version of Red Hat Enterprise Linux, that they're having some organizational problems at the moment and their kind of structure of their, uh, well, of their project and their governance and stuff is effectively killing uh, the, the, the project, which is a shame. So I thought we could talk about um, some ideas around, uh, yeah, about what's going on there and also how maybe you could set up your project well initially to try and, you know, mitigate those problems down the road. Yeah. So, I mean, something you've had a lot more experience of, and I believe you've, you've written a, a blog post on this as well. Uh, which we'll reference yeah, I have. in the show notes. So, 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 do you want to talk through uh, talk through the CentOS situation, and uh, and then and then we'll get to yeah. the other stuff at the end. So maybe we should bring. So I don't. Uh, we've mentioned the CentOS situation briefly on Freeism and Freedom, uh, but I don't think we've gone too much into it. But you actually interviewed the folks on Floss Weekly uh, when you were because you're in a you're a you're sort of one of the rotating co-hosts on Floss Weekly these days. So do you want to sort of bring people up to speed who might not have heard that episode? Sort of what you learned from that and and how it all played out. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, at the time, I think it was about. Um, oh God, I forget. This is bad, but I, f- I forget exactly when it was. I think it was, it was a couple months ago. Pro- probably I about six. Six months ago, well, it was more than two weeks ago. <laughs> I know that it was a while ago. I uh, I interviewed uh, Karen Beer Singh, who is the current um, leader of the CentOS project. And at that time, none of these um, problems, well, certainly publicly, they weren't known about. If they were happening uh, in the background, I don't know, but they weren't publicly known about. But uh, I was quite surprised when we spoke to him. Um, one of the things I always like to try and find out when we talk to projects is how many people are involved and how people can get involved and how open they're development model is and um yeah he basically uh, told me there's literally a handful of people who work on centos i think it's like five or six or something like that who work kind of full-time on uh well not full-time but you know we have like um main stakeholder <clears throat> pardon me main stakeholders in in centos um i think a lot of them actually work for other companies doing other things and they do centos in their uh free time or their spare time um i don't know if there's anyone employed full-time to work on it but um it, it they've when when we when we discussed it i asked him how people could get involved and it was quite interesting because um he kind of gave an answer that a lot of um a lot of projects uh, wouldn't give on on something like floss weekly something that surprised me was uh, they 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 have a what they what they like to call a kind of uh, i don't know not i don't know whether you'd call it a vetting process or something but they they say they like to keep the technical bar very high for people who work on centos uh, it seems all seems very elitist to me and i'm not sure 
I like it. But uh, yeah, the the reason that the developer community is so small is because basically that they want people who are only the best of the best of the best or whatever, and they they. they try and keep that bar very high which on one hand i can kind of see the merit of if you if you that's what you want to do but at the same time it it, it limits your access to community resources and to to other uh, help and other developers and this the the situation at the moment seems to be we've had uh, quite a few uh, prominent uh, people who've tried to get involved with centos or who have at various times been involved with centos basically have said that um they can't get anything done because they're, you know, the, the grip that they've got on the grip that this core group have got on control of the project is so tight and, and they, they can't do anything with it. So it's kind of almost like a closed development model. And we had some criticism, um, from some of the developers that the, the model is too closed and they're going to move to other things because because of this. Um, and unfortunately, I mean, CentOS 5, uh, well, as I said, CentOS is a repackaging or, um, redistribution of Red Hat Enterprise Linux. And as many people might know listening to this, Red Hat Enterprise Linux 6 uh, came out a fair while ago now, and 6.1 is out at the moment. There's no sign of CentOS 6 uh, at all, and lots of people are getting very nervous about that, and it looks like it may not even happen. Uh, and they're actually fi- they're working on 5.6, which is a re- repackaging of Red Hat 5.6, which is almost out of date now anyway. I mean, they have long-term support and so on, but it's almost out of date. And um, it just doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And lots of people, because one thing I found amazing for a project with so many, well, sorry, so few developers is uh, how important that CentOS has been to... Um, it's you know the web web hosting uh, industry and stuff like that. So many uh, web hosts rely on it. Big mm-hmm. big companies rely on it, and I find it really strange that with such an important project that uh, you know some of these companies don't get together and employ some people to work on it full time and get things going. Um, but yeah, that's the kind of situation at the moment. The, 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 there's a lot of doom and gloom being talked around CentOS, mm-hmm. which um, which is sad. And I think that, that those community problems are in some ways a trickle-down effect from the way that RHEL is developed. Mm. So, so you have, you have RHEL being developed. Basically, it, 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 so, so actually I want to go back in time first. Mm-hmm. So, so if you look at the way Red Hat was, and, and it was called, the, the distribution was called Red Hat back in, back in the 90s. That, that was the product. Uh, and, and Red Hat was developed in a relatively open way. Most of the employees, uh, of the Red Hat company were, 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 were working on it. It wasn't like it was a huge community project, uh, but they, they've developed in a re- reasonably open way and the releases were open and available in the usual types of ways and, 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 and so forth. Uh, and then a- as the RHEL model got developed and the RHEL model is, and I've written about the RHEL model a lot on my blog about how it's, it, it basically walks right up to the line of GPL, but doesn't cross it. So mm-hmm. it's, it's basically as close as you could get to violating the GPL without violating it. Um, and, and, and so, and so it's, it's really designed, um, to encourage people to buy these uh, site licenses for support. Uh, and, and because of that, it, it's a very secretive way that it's distributed. So, so I think when someone gets a copy of, of RHEL, which they have to do to build CentOS, it, it, there's sort of all this secrecy involved around it. And I think that trickles down into the CentOS community. In fact, I don't even know, I still don't know to this day, exactly how CentOS gets access to a copy of RHEL because uh, it's very difficult to, to redistribute RHEL. It's, it's, it's allowed under GPL, but, but, uh, Red Hat uh, will cancel your contract 
right. if you engage in redistribution, um, which which is it's not a GPL violation. I think it's a nasty thing to do, uh, but it's but it's it, it's uh, it, it, it's it's rare that somebody will give you a copy of RHEL. Like if you go to a company that's bought a site license for support, they're unlikely to want to give you a copy. Now they don't have to give you a copy. GPL doesn't require distribution, but they're actually afraid they're going to piss Red Hot off by giving you a copy. So I don't even know how that stuff trickles down at the CentOS community in the first place. But I also think that because RHEL has this secretive model, it sort of makes CentOS a sort of weird thing. And I think you're quite right that a lot of companies depend on CentOS. And I think Red Hat sort of lost their way with regard to the way that they developed the server operating system. Because the server operating system is is their product, and, and CentOS actually drives sales to them. I've been told by Red Hat engineers that when they they often get us a, a support request and and actually it's a, it's for CentOS and they tell people well you need to buy a license for RHEL not a, not a license for the software but a, a a support license for RHEL if you want help on this uh, and then people do right so they go to Red Hat they ask for support on CentOS Red Hat says well we don't support CentOS you have to you have to get support for RHEL for us to help you and then they buy it so so CentOS is actually a marketing arm for RHEL so instead of like basically most Red Hat people are sort of like oh, CentOS is kind of a competitor to RHEL. I mean, I think that's the way most of the salespeople at Red Hat think. Um, but it's not. It's actually their marketing arm. And, and they understand this with Fedora, right? I mean, Fedora is also a marketing arm uh, for, for Red Hat as well. And so I don't see why they don't help CentOS be a more open community where um, they can get that kind of interest and get people using it. And, and, and it would sell Red Hat support contracts if they did it that way. I, I don't understand why Red Hat has to think that way about RHEL. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. I don't think it helps their business model, frankly. Yeah, it, it's strange. I mean, one of the things I've um, kind of gleaned from talking to various Red Hat technical people, I've got to confess, I don't really talk to the salespeople that often, so I don't know whether their attitude is different. But, I mean, obviously the engineers often have a different attitude to that kind of thing anyway. They seem quite supportive of of CentOS in, in principle and so on. And um, they, when I spoke to, to some of their engineers, they were talking about the fact that they tried to make it easier for CentOS to repackage what they, they do by putting all of their branding into specific packages that can be removed um, to make it easier. So that's what I find strange when you were saying about, um, I, I don't know, I've never really thought about it. I always assumed that somewhere you could make a request for source to uh, Red Hat for for Red Hat Enterprise Linux or whatever, you could make a request for source, and that was what CentOS were doing, getting the source and then repackage, recompiling, repackaging, whatever. Um, so it, it's interesting. But one of the, the things I did find out um, from talking to some of the Red Hat people is that there are, um, as you say, there are I think a small set of packages uh, that that make the difference between CentOS and um, Red Hat Enterprise. And what they will do is, if you are a CentOS user and you go to them and say I need support. I've got this problem with this, that, or the other. They will say, as you, as you, as you said, they will they will sell you a, a support license, a Red Hat support license. And often, what they will do is run these package updates, which converts your CentOS box into a Red Hat Enterprise Linux box, um, which I find really interesting. They they will actually add these packages for you and say, okay, that's good. Now you've got RHEL. You know, now you've got the same product. So it is it is very strange. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's I think it's completely it's completely reasonable for them to do that. It, obviously, if they only want to support their own product, that's their their prerogative, and, and of mm. course, they should only support their own product. Um, and that just goes to support the idea that CentOS really is a marketing arm for them. And and, and so, and the thing you mentioned about uh, making it easy for developers, I, I mean, I know I know 
lots of Red Hat developers bring that up when, when you bring up CentOS, but that was a long time ago when that was done. I mean, that, that was a very different Red Hat that did that. And that actually goes all the way back to the very early days of Red Hat Linux. Uh, the, the trademark removal, the easy trademark removal stuff was added way back then before, basically before RHEL ever existed. Right. So, so it's a little bit disingenuous to say, oh yeah, we did that for the CentOS developers. I mean, RHEL didn't even exist when that was done and it just was, was carried on into RHEL. So I, I, I'm troubled by the whole situation. I, I think the, I think the problems from CentOS actually come from upstream. I, I think that the way RHEL is structured is, is sort of influencing how the CentOS community is structured. And I think it, it leads to the problems in the CentOS community. I, I think secrecy breeds secrecy. I think the way the CentOS developers think, that thing you saw about them not wanting people to be involved, it, it, it comes from the fact that they have to clandestinely try to get <laughs> copies of RHEL. It could be they've had trouble getting RHEL 6, right? Because I don't know how, like I said, I, I don't know how you would go about getting all the sources to RHEL 6 because you have to receive distribution of RHEL um, from Red Hat to actually have a right to ask for the source. And the only way I know that you can receive distribution from Red Hat is to become a service customer. And of course, they cancel your service contract if you redistribute. So I always figured that there was a, like a, like a little cabal of people who go around like buying a RHEL license. Cause it, cause that's the whole thing about RHEL. RHEL is designed around your money's no good here if you exercise your rights under GPL. So if they know you're a CentOS developer, they probably won't even sell you a support contract. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I've got images of um, from all those years of watching X Files of that, you know, meeting that uh, people in the bottom of a, a multi story car park or something like that. Deep throat guy when they used to go and meet him in a car park somewhere. Um, oh, you mean the smoking man? The smoking man. Yeah, yeah, and that's right. And they and they'd like you know get maybe that's how they get a copy of Rao. I don't know. Um, by leave it in a dustbin and then leave ten minutes before the next person comes past <laughs> and, and opens the bin to take it out. I don't know. Um, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure, but I mean to make. Uh, to, to be fair, I mean, I um, to play devil's advocate a little bit. I know that the the Red Hat people would probably say that Fedora is upstream of RHEL and Fedora is open, so they feel that that's op- an open model or something. Um, I don't know. What do you reckon to that? Well, I, I think I think that Fedora was designed to be a research arm. That that's when the whole thing happened, where, where Red Hat Linux uh, sort of died out. And they said, well, we want to have a server operating system. We want to have a lot more control over it. They designed the RHEL model. And then Fedora was basically the spinoff project, which was designed to be sort of the research arm for RHEL. I think that's how, I think that's how people, management inside Red Hat, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know what they think, but my impression of what they think is that they look at Fedora as basically R&D. They get stuff together, put it into Fedora, make a distribution, and then the real people come along and pick and choose from that to decide what they're going to make stable, what worked, you know, like the system D thing, right? So that's a great example. I'm sure, I, well, I don't know this for sure because I don't know what's in RHEL 6, but um, I, I don't think system D is, is there yet in RHEL. And what's happening is they've got Leonard uh, working for Red Hat, developing this new startup system. It's being put into Fedora early. It's sort of a researchy thing. It, it doesn't work fully yet, but it's getting there. And then eventually when, when people People see when Red Hat inside people see that System D is stable and it's working, they'll move it into RHEL. And so, and so that's a great example of how it's basically an R and D arm of of RHEL. And, and 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 I think that's how they structured it inside the company. 
So I think the developers are right that basically what's in Fedora today is probably the rel of tomorrow. Um, but there's a real interesting editorial process that Red Hat's doing, and that's sort of their special sauce, is they're deciding what's stable enough to be in rel. And then the CentOS guys on the other end are, are sort of spinning it around and saying, well, we're getting the, the sort of downstream output of, of their editorial process from Fedora to rel, and then we're going to get out there and put it as a server operating system. I think you're right. That's why CentOS is so important, because these web server companies want to use CentOS because it's the the editorial process that came out of Fedora to RHEL that they want to get access to. That's why they don't want to run their web services on Fedora. Um, so, uh, yeah, anyway, that's so, so I, th- I think that's what's happening. I think it's, it's sort of a dysfunctional community because it's all sort of being washed through Red Hat in this weird business model. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you're definitely right that, I mean, I, um, I, th- I, well, this is purely a personal opinion, obviously, but I would, wouldn't run my servers on Fedora. Um, and I know most people, there are some people who do, but I know other people who would agree just because it is prone to, um, you know, experimental features and things that might break. And that definitely pushes you towards the Red Hat Enterprise model in that Fedora, they're not push, they're not making Fedora as a, as a, a stable product. Uh, they're making it, as you say, as the R&D arm, uh, which is interesting. I suppose in comparison to something like the Debian model, which other people would know, I would think of Fedora as being more like testing or unstable. And RHEL being more a bit more like Debian stable in that if you want a stable guarantee, well not guaranteed, but you know if you want a stable as as solid as it can be uh, distribution for your server, which is if you've got any brains, is what you do want for your server. Uh, then you know you've got to get the stable model, and that is RHEL at the moment. Uh, it seems, yeah. So it, it's interesting, but um, <clears throat> um, I don't know. Uh, branching out a little bit to the kind of the wider question I was saying about what people have been asking me. Um, this is a tough question, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Do you think – how do you think they could structure things differently or how should a project structure things uh, in the initial phases to try and hopefully mitigate this thing? I know you talk about the replicant um, thing with, with the FSF and if Microsoft took over the FSF and replaced everyone. So I imagine that's similar to it as well. How do you, how do you maintain a kind of open governance model and so on? Well, I think it's, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this when we when we get we get next segment when we talk about the the LibreOffice open office mm. situation. I think it's really really tough to pull off in a case like this where you have the the giant gorilla in the room, right? So when you look at something like CentOS, uh, it's really tough to build a community out of something where you're effectively reliant on a closed. A model. I mean, it's it's basically a closed model of a company in control of the code base. It's much easier. And actually, I'm going to link uh, online to a couple of different articles uh, that I think are good. Um, uh, a guy named uh, um, uh, his username's Quaid. He works. Uh, Car- his, his name's Carsten uh, Wade. Carsten Wade. Yeah. Uh, Carsten Wade. Yeah. Uh, he works for he works for Red Hat, ironically enough. But he wrote a really uh, nice thing called the the open. Uh, I think it's called the Open Source Way. Mm. Um, and it's it's a good article to sort of explain how to do community development. Uh, it's, it's actually more of a book. Um, and also, uh, Carl Fogel wrote a really good book on maintaining and producing open source software that sort of explains uh, how to keep your community strong. Uh, but I think neither of them really talk about how to build your community from the start. I do have that blog post you mentioned, which... Uh, it's called Where Are the Bytes, which I'll also link it to in the show notes. And actually, that's a little bit about starting a project. And my main point in that blog post is is get the stuff out there early and often and keep it developed in public. I, I really feel like 
the, the way to make sure your project has that kind of community health is make sure everything happens in public. And it's really, it's really tough to do when you have a lot of developers sort of, um, centered in a company. Uh, and I know Mozilla struggles with this all the time because they, they've got a lot of Mozilla developers sitting at the offices of the Mozilla Corporation doing the work and they talk to each other and, and humans are, are, they have a tendency to want to talk in person. It's, it's, it's like basically evolved into us for, for, you know, you yeah. know thousands and tens of thousands of years that we interact in person. So a lot of things don't get documented on the mailing lists and on IRC and other online fora. So a lot of people who are developers, uh, uh, contributing to Mozilla don't feel like they're in the team because the team is actually physically there in Mountain View at the Mozilla Corporation offices. So, um, I think it's really, and this is the same problem you have with, with CentOS and RHEL and, and the fact that RHEL is basically developed by engineers at Red Hat internally. It's even worse there because they're not even trying to talk to the CentOS developers. And so, so I think developing in public is, is really the, the first thing you've got to do. It's, it's basically the, the, the prerequisite. Uh, to to really have uh, a a community that's healthy and that that doesn't have these kinds of problems. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I as I said, I, I've been asked this question a few times lately, which is strange. I mean, I don't know why people would ask me that question because I don't have a history of making successful free software projects, so I'm probably not the best guy to ask. But I think my they were basically asking me what they needed to think about up front before they got started or what were the things they should consider and I think my response was uh, definitely think about what license you're going to use and make sure uh, that you are you know you're definite about what license you want to use why you want to use it and and why you want to you know build the community around that Uh, make sure you pick the one that's best for you obviously I have my opinions and I know you do on what license would be best but I suppose that's up to the project. Oh, I just wanted to add on the licensing point. I think that's absolutely correct. I, and this is gonna, gonna really lead well into the next segment because I, I, I think the license that a community builds around basically becomes your constitution mm. of the community. That's, that's basically your declaration document of this is our principle in this project. This is what we believe in. Um, cause licenses, I believe, are moral documents. They say this is what our community is. And you're absolutely right. Once the license is picked, I think it's really important that, that, that the community stick around that license and, and stick with that license. I mean, obviously you can change a license and it's, it can be done and it should be done in some cases, uh, but it needs to be community consensus you need to make sure that the community want the whole community wants that license to be this changed and 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 you should only do it with with great care if you change a license you should generally pick the license and stick with it and and as you said morally justify right up why you picked it and and, and make all that and again the, the, going back to what i said before make that public uh, and and make all your thinking public about why you're leading the projects in the way that you are yeah, um, and as you said, that does lead very nicely into our into our next topic. So, um, I, if anybody wants to, to to know more about that kind of uh, how you know topics to think about, where if you are looking to start a project, as Bradley said, we'll have some links uh, to some useful documents in the show notes and so on. But unfortunately, it doesn't seem like I, I was asking you this yesterday. It doesn't. I suppose it's hard, but there is no kind of guide, no definitive guide anywhere for you go through X amount of steps and then you've got, you know, everything sorted. You need to, to move forward and start writing code or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think both, I think both Karsten's and, uh, and, and Carl's books, uh, do touch on this topic. I, I, I think they're mostly geared towards, You've kind of got it going now. How do you make sure you don't screw up uh, more than they are getting started? Um, but uh, but I think there is some advice in those books that would that would be helpful to people getting started too. Mm. Yeah, and um, I think uh, I don't know whether whether you agree with this, but in my experience with with kind of code coding projects and stuff, people 
developers i mean we're all uh, in my experience we're all fairly pragmatic and we want to get going and we want to start writing code we don't want to sit down and spend three days working out what license to use and all that kind of stuff so a lot of times it's like an afterthought um, and even if you look at say the linux kernel that was never started as a gpl project it was just relicensed under that for whatever reason back in you know years ago and and it was never yeah, I mean, thought I mean, about the reason, the reason linus gives the reason linus gives is he says well um, I made it under a non-commercial license and then people were asking me about selling CDs and then so yeah. I didn't know what to do. And then I just picked GPL because it was there in GCC. So you're right that it was kind of was an afterthought in the sense that he just said, well, I use GCC a lot, so I'll just use its license. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and looking back on it, I know we're getting off the topic here a little bit, but looking back on it now, I mean, it's, that's been a quite a, an important decision for what a lot of, a uh, lot of what's come later. Uh, but that's the thing that's what I was saying. I, I think people need to kind of think a little bit before we all want to get in there and start writing code and stuff. But if you, if you go too far down that road and start pushing your project to, you know, to forward technically without any kind of direction or governance model, you, you're going to create problems which will rear their heads later on, as we're seeing with a lot of projects now. I, I think that I, I think the future is hopeful. I mean, I, everybody who listens to the show knows I'm somewhat of a pessimist, but on on this yeah. point, I'm a little bit of an optimist because I, I think I think the level of knowledge and understanding about licenses and why you choose them and so forth is really raising in the community. I I, I had an interesting discussion on Identica this past week. Where, um, where I was pointing out that I, I so, so there's a, a big, uh, this is way off topic, but it's, I think it's worth mentioning because it sort of, uh, uh, exemplifies the point. Um, there's, a, there's certain people who want to abolish copyright altogether and think that copyright's in the way. And, um, and it's actually Fab, your, your co-host in Linux Outlaws, who was bringing up, well, if we abolish copyright, uh, copyright because other mechanisms are used to proprietarize software other than copyright, obviously copyright is used, but also various different EULAs and patents and all these other systems can be used to proprietarize software that we can't just get rid of copyright because copyleft is sort of the only thing we have defending the freedom of free software and it uses copyright. So we can't just abolish copyright unilaterally. We have to make sure there's a way to keep free software free without copyright. And that that's a concept that it actually took me probably a decade to really understand because I used to kind of be a copyright abolitionist. And then I started to realize, well, wait a second. If we abolish copyright, what happens to copyleft and what happens to free software? And thinking through that, it took me a, quite a number of years. And the fact that that's just sort of the default thinking, Fab and I were sort of going back and forth on this. I was really impressed that he had figured this out. And, and he pointed out that, well, this is a, we basically we've reached a moment in the history of free software that, that it's like, it's like, uh, it's like calculus, right? Calculus, everybody learns it, um, in usually like their senior year of high school or the first year of college if they, if they, if they do math, any, any sort of math. And it's sort of just like a, a fundamental math tool that you learn. But there was a time when calculus was the area of research. Like Isaac Newton sat down and, 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 and Leibniz sat down and worked out calculus, right? And it was new research. And now it's just taught as, oh, this is exists, you know? Um, and it's a thing. You have to learn it's like it's like basically like arithmetic now um and and so that's happened a lot in our community the level of knowledge as we've grown up as a community over a period of, of 30 40 years we've built a level of knowledge that's just common knowledge uh, and i think that's i think that's really valuable and, and that's making this issue easier because people don't just start projects and be like oh i'll make it a non-commercial license i mean it happens sometimes but most people are by the time they're ready to start a project by the time they have the sort of acumen to go and do it uh they already understand all these concepts because they're just common knowledge so i i, I think that that this is getting a lot better and and so i, I think there'll be less issues with this in the future 
Yeah, I mean, not to, fewer, not, fewer issues. Sorry, I misspoke there. Fewer. Yeah, issues. yeah. Few, well, one of um, my issues with, uh, say, the likes of the Pirate Party, I don't want to get too political about it, is the fact that the they originally were talking about the abolition of all copyright, and I thought straight away, well, what does that mean for? free software and i know that pirate party uk a lot of the people involved in that are free software people and they, to be fair to them they did i think consult with rms about this because they were talking about a fixed five-year fixed term five-year copyright on everything um and um i think after they spoke with rms he said 10 years would be okay for free software yeah i think that's right yeah so i think they came to an agreement but as is anyway we're, we're, we're rambling away here so we should probably think about moving to the next topic <laughs> yeah we, we should move on i mean i think my main point is that is that i think the level of of, of discourse and knowledge in the community is getting better so i think it'll be easier mm. for people mm. to start projects um and hopefully they won't have problems like we're about to talk about in the next segment <laughs> Cool. So um, it's usually Karen who calls for a musical interlude, as I know, because I have to cut them in. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, let, let's have a little quick musical interlude and then move on to our, our next topic. Then. Okay, so we're going to talk about another uh, topic which kind of relates to what we've already discussed in terms of licensing and project governance and all that kind of stuff. Um, there's been a lot of uh, news in the last week uh, and in the last, well, year, in fact, uh, or more, concerning OpenOffice and LibreOffice. And uh, I thought it would be a good idea if we get the kind of historical context first because I always worry that perhaps some people don't know what, you know the context of what we're talking about. The other thing is I think this audience is very technical, so a lot of you may know this. So bear with us. But uh, just very, very quickly, can you give us a little bit of a background to, to this uh, situation? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes, uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting trajectory. I think it goes back uh, to, to way, way back when OpenOffice.org was launched. Uh, what happened was um, there was a time when people thought you might still have Unix desk- desktops. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and there was the, the, the big challenge was how do we have an office suite for Unix? And there was this German company that had developed Star, this program called Star Office, uh, that was pretty far along and it worked. And Sun decided to acquire it in hopes of basically making a desktop, uh, for Solaris. Uh, and also to foil Microsoft somewhat, they, they made sure it well, already ran on Windows. So they, they also made sure there was a Windows version available and maintained that as well. Uh, so, yeah. so Star Office was a proprietary software product from, uh, originally from this other company. I don't even remember the name of the company these days. Uh, maybe it was called Star Office. I don't know, but it doesn't really matter. <laughs> Um, and then Sun t- took it over and, and produced it as a proprietary product. And as um, free software became more popular and the whole open source fad got started, uh, Sun decided to release it uh, under under a free software license and and run it. Uh, they well initially they were going to run it as uh, uh, basically it was a it was a proprietary relicensing model. They kept the Star Office stuff around, uh, but they had a code base out there that was uh, under uh, a free software license. It was under LGPL. Um, and there was actually a lot of acrimony in the GNOME community in particular. That was the community I was following much more closely uh, because another project had started called Abbey Word, which is still around, that was trying to write something from scratch. And so there was actually a lot of acrimony of what code base to use. Um, 
and actually Michael Meeks, who plays a big part of the story going forward, uh, was an advocate in the GNOME community of we should be contributing to OpenOffice. Uh, we should get OpenOffice to be the default GNOME uh, desktop suite uh, and so forth. So uh, back in if this sort of brings us up to like 2001, uh, 2002 timeframe. Uh, Michael was out there advocating for people and in fact advocating for people to assign copyright to Sun because Sun went around requiring people to assign any copyrights if they wanted it in the main code base to Sun because Sun was still relicensing it out under proprietary licenses as Star Office and also signed a deal with IBM, which comes into play uh, later in the story. Uh, so they had signed a deal with IBM and IBM integrated it with various products. Uh, in the meantime, IBM bought Lotus Notes and they made Symphony, uh, which was a Lotus Notes project, uh, into their sort of, I guess it's their their uh, company corporate integration suite mm. or whatever you call it. Mm. Productivity call it. suite or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so they integrated uh, Star Office, a uh, proprietary version of OpenOffice into that and, and, and had the code base. And so they had a special license from Sun, all of which worked because uh, Sun had all these copyright assignments from individual developers so that they could take the LGPL version and make it proprietary. So that's sort of what leads us up to the moment when Sun buys Oracle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sorry, Oracle, I, I'm sorry, Oracle everybody... buys, I said that backwards. Oracle buys Sun. Sun is sold to Oracle. Yeah, I was going to say that would have been interesting. Yeah, um, yeah. I, don't think, I don't think Sun had the capitalization to make that No, happen. unfortunately not. So, yeah, I mean, this is um, – I'm sure everyone will have seen this. I mean, it's, it's, it's been big news. Like, But, uh, yeah, obviously Oracle came along, acquired uh, Sun and all of their – um, projects, including many open source projects, actually not just Open Office, but things like uh, uh, VirtualBox, which okay, it has another dual licensing model. But then, you know, there was other things in there, or lots of projects that people were worried about, like Hudson, uh, like My and... My MySQL, or you know, that that was a big one, obviously. Uh, yeah, Hudson as well is another one. Um, there's so many, really. But basically, um, because of that, I mean, I, I uh, as far as I understand it, the because of the acquisition, lots of developers who've been working on OpenOffice um, got a little uh, worried about the future of it and so on, and there were lots of discussions going on about what they should do, and eventually a fork was made, uh, which has come to be known as uh, LibreOffice under the Document Foundation, which is this foundation they set up to to go forward with this. Um, and, and then it kind of, yeah, this, so where do we go from there then? Well, so, so the interesting thing about the fork was that, that, that this, was, this was a build-up. Uh, the, 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 the Oracle acquisition of Sun was really the last straw more than it was the catalyst, I think. Right. Because the 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 OpenOffice.org uh, developer, the people contributing to it, were already very frustrated. Uh, there were lots of patches not finding their way in. There was lots of shenanigans going on that that really aren't worth getting into. And and frankly, a lot of them are unsubstantiated rumor. Uh, but I heard enough of those rumors that I'm pretty sure that that at least some of them are true. Or, or no or smoke without fire. Or whatever yeah, they say. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So <laughs> yeah. so the Oracle acquisition and Oracle taking control of OpenOffice was basically a last straw for the the non-affiliated developers. And I don't, by non-affiliated, I don't mean 
that they're they're not work for companies. A lot of them, for example, will work for Novell, um, mm, and mm. some work for Red Hat, and some work for for Canonical, and so forth. But um, but they're, they're sort of not affiliated with the two big corporate powers, uh, Oracle and IBM, in the open office community. And so and they were already frustrated. They they didn't like this deal, this this side deal that that Sun and now Oracle had with IBM over over the code base. And there was there were lots of uh, the shenanigans were basically related to small companies that were trying to get into the open office market were sort of being squelched by Oracle and IBM for various reasons. Uh, there was even I even heard this scheme <laughs> to get around it, which was that they would get uh, these companies, these small companies would get <laughs> the unaffiliated open openoffice.org developers to submit bug reports because if Oracle saw or Sun at the time saw that it was a bug report from one of their competitors, they basically would would give it lower priority. It was it was really kind of sick sick mess. Um, and so and so all these kind of shenanigans were really bothering. The, the project and and this goes back to what I was saying in the last segment about the license being kind of the the, the constitution of the community well the constitution of the community was all your base are belong to us. It was basically you assign everything to Oracle or it gives it back to you under LGPL, but we're mm-hmm. off doing the proprietary licensing thing. And people have probably seen me talk about how proprietary licensing is dangerous. Um, yeah. and so, and so, so the, the LibreOffice people, they basically had the last straw with, with the Oracle acquisition because Oracle's such a worse. I mean, Sun was actually trying, I think. Sun wanted to be a more open source company and they were trying to become one. Uh, mm-hmm. but Oracle has really no interest in that. And so, and so that was was, that just made it clear that there wasn't that the problems. I think everybody held out hope that Sun was going to fix some of these problems, uh, but they knew that Oracle was not going to. So the Oracle acquisition was just kind of a last straw. And so then they and you're right, they started this foundation. It's a it's a German foundation, and I think it's great that they started a nonprofit. Um, it's it's I believe it's an EV in Germany uh, that they're using to to house LibreOffice and make sure that it is operated in a not for profit way. And they forked under LGPL, which is permitted, and they created a fork that and. It Immediately, they brought in lots of changes that people hadn't assigned to Sun because Sun and Oracle would never take changes that weren't assigned because it wouldn't allow them to license this ideal to IBM. It wouldn't allow them to make the proprietary star office out of it. So they immediately pulled in lots of those patches. They immediately pulled in people from smaller companies that were trying to do consulting around around the code base and so forth. And distributions quickly switched to LibreOffice and 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 basically, I mean, Suze obviously switched because a lot of the engineers working on LibreOffice worked for Novell, but also Canonical uh, switched Ubuntu to LibreOffice, uh, Fedora switched to LibreOffice. So, Fedora, so basically yeah. all of the main distributions have switched. Mm. Uh, Debian, I guess, hasn't switched mainly because they released uh, Squeeze. F- Squeeze was frozen before LibreOffice came out, so they right, won't yeah. be able to switch Squeeze. But I, I don't know what's actually happening in SID with regard to Debian. I'm, I would, knowing Debian, I, I bet both are, but now packaged. Yeah, yeah, quite possibly. Yeah, um, yeah, it's an interesting uh, situation. Something that I, I, I must have kind of misunderstood historically was the license that OpenOffice, uh, OpenOffice as well, and since it was open source, they've always been under L, LGPL. I, I didn't realize that because I probably mistakenly, obviously mistakenly assumed that they would use something like CCDL, which they've used for a lot of their other things like Java and Open Solaris and stuff. Um, so why did they choose LGPL? No, as I understand it, most of the case, most, most of the code base, I, there's various different licenses across the, the, the code base, uh, but the primary license that's on most files, as mm. I understand it, is LGPLv3 only 
or disjunctive or with the Mozilla license, Mozilla's uh, public license. So, so that, that most of the code base is under that. I think the effective license of the whole thing is now LGPL v3 only because there's a lot of code that's been brought in under LGPL. And, and so, so when you look at the specifically LibreOffice code base, basically it's default licenses LGPL v3 only because they brought so much stuff in, although a lot of the code could be taken under the Mozilla public license as well. Um, but yeah, they switched to LGPL v3 when it came out and it was actually one of the, one of the projects that did, uh, which I thought was pretty interesting, um, that they switched to that. Uh, and good because I'm a fan yeah, of the LGPL v3. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it was originally under, I believe, LGPL v2.1 only or Mozilla. I think that was the, it was a dual license mm-hmm. then as well. Uh, dual, by dual license, I, I don't mean the relicensing, which is something different. I mean a disjunctive license between mm-hmm. two choices. Um, in that case. So, so yeah, I think that's been the license, uh, basically since the free software release back in the early 2000s. I could be wrong about that. I mean, it, because, because Oracle could unilaterally, Sun in those days, could unilaterally change the license at any time it wanted. It may have changed a number yeah. of times. I don't, yeah. I don't know what, what it was each moment historically, but I know what it is now. Mm. So, I mean, to, to kind of speed forward a bit, because we've kind of exhausted the backstory there, and I know lots of people will be rolling their eyes and thinking, well, I know this anyway. Why, you know, what does it matter? So, the, the big mm. developments. In, actually, in the last week, um, I think to a you know few days ago, is that Oracle have now uh, submitted uh, or proposed, if you like, uh, Open Office as an Apache Foundation project, and they uh, want to switch to a, uh, Apache 2.0 license, uh, which is obviously well, it, it's caused a lot of problems and so on. So, what, what's happening there? Do you think? Well, so what I think has happened is that the the LibreOffice was a successful fork. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that there were so many people who have been so pent up and annoyed with Sun and now Oracle for so long that people just flocked to LibreOffice. And, and Michael, uh, I think, knew this was going to happen, and most of the most of the developers. Um, who weren't affiliated with IBM or Oracle knew that once they forked, it would really take off. I mean, I, I basically, <laughs> because of my connections to the community, I knew the fork was happening before it was announced. And, and yeah. it was actually, I, I did some, some behind the scenes stuff to try and help them get the fork, uh, going. Um, uh, actually, the things I tried to help them with actually didn't pan out. I, I did my best. Uh, but, uh, yeah, but, yeah. uh, basically I helped them with, with trying to figure out what to do with regard to the foundation and so forth. Um, in the end, it made the most sense for them just to form their own foundation. But, uh, um, but uh, yeah, it's a, so 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 th- th- this was a long time coming, and, and I, I think what happened was is, is people just flocked to it, and Oracle kind of had this reaction of well, we don't know what to do now, and it was IBM who was most concerned, right? Because Oracle is not that I think you said this earlier that they, they mm. weren't that, that it wasn't why they but they didn't buy Sun to get Open Office, no. uh, and so so it was sort of like Oracle was like, oh, what do we do with this asset we have? And the main thing was is the deal with IBM, and and IBM is really politically savvy about open source and free software. They should not be underestimated. They're not necessarily always a friend to software freedom. Uh, in fact, they usually aren't. If you look at their their horrible uh, anti-free uh, software filing in the Bilski case in, in, as an amicus brief, you'll see that they're not a friend to free software most of the time, although they try to play themselves out to be. And this is really a manipulation tactic, primarily by IBM, although backed by Oracle, uh, obviously, uh, because Oracle had to agree to the relicensing, to try and 
and build uh, consensus, uh, basically, uh, to use the Chomsky term, manufacture consensus that everybody wants to switch to an Apache licensed open office code base. Yeah. Uh, and they've got, they, I, I mean, I think the Apache Foundation, I mean, I mean I'm troubled that they were willing to make this deal because I, I think they sort of naively, um, I think they're being naive on purpose. I think they know that this is a political move by IBM. That the guys who run Apache Foundation, and it is all guys. I'm sorry to say, um, mm. uh, they, they're smart and they understand free software politics. They must know that this is an IBM manipulation tactic. Um, and I think for their for principled reasons, they're allowing this to basically. Uh, they're basically allowing themselves to act naively about, oh, this is just another project applying, entering our incubator period and all this stuff, because I, I think they have no other way uh, to to uphold the principles of the Apache Software Foundation at the same time uh, you know, you're not uh, you know, you're do, doing the right thing. So so I sort of get why they're doing it and why they're acting kind of naive about it. I don't think they are naive. I think they're just acting naive. Um, but basically, this is an IBM tactic. It's 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 a it's a classic IBM political maneuver. And if you read uh, uh, Rob Weir's blog, who's the, sort of been the spokesperson IBM has put forward uh, to talk about this, it's a very manipulative uh, blog post that's trying to convince people that that somehow this is great for free software. It misquotes the FSF. I, I've I've commented on the blog about why it's misquoting FSF, saying, "Oh yeah, FSF loves the Apache license." Well, the FSF likes the Apache license when a project's already permissively licensed, but they yeah. they don't FSF doesn't go around saying switch from copyleft to permissive it, like that that would be like counter yeah. like counter FSF's mission in a lot of ways so uh, so so yeah he sort of quotes FSF out of context saying oh they they endorsed Apache well they didn't endorse this um, and uh, and so and so it's it's a lot of manipulation going on trying to get people to to come back and they're and they're basically trying to play LibreOffice like oh they're a they're a nasty fork that's angry at us and won't come cooperate on our code base but there's a License change that they basically shifted the foundation to to, to make a pun uh, of the of the open office slash LibreOffice community saying oh we're going to Apache relicense all the all the, the the underlying code and why won't you come contribute under the Apache license what do you have against the Apache license what do you have against the Apache process well there was already a community there the community was designed around LGPL. Um, Oracle had a special license out of out uh, outside of LGPL, and and IBM had one too because of its deal with Sun slash Oracle. And so, this change is basically trying to make IBM and Oracle seem like they were oh all friendly all along, when in fact it's really just trying to 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 nail a nail a you know put nails in the coffin of the fork of LibreOffice, and it's it's mm. really. It, yeah, it's politics, and and I I've tried to analyze it as, as everybody look at this and see that it's politics. Don't look at this as on as naively on its face and say, oh well, they're just trying to get right by the open office community or something. No, this is a last ditch effort. Oracle announced a few weeks ago they were giving up on open office, and all of a sudden IBM steps in, and now they're doing this. And and this is this is basically a last ditch effort to try and keep basically IBM control over the open office code base because Oracle doesn't really care about it anymore. So anyway, that's my rant about the whole topic. I'm sorry. I got a little, I got a little ranty there, but I, no, that's sort okay. of my thinking okay. on what's happened. Yeah. So I'm assuming, um, well, obviously we're only, we can only speculate, but I would, I would assume that you mentioned symphony and, and some of the other products that IBM are shipping. I would imagine that they're, they're, uh, proprietary, you know, products and stuff that are, that have taken from, uh, the open office code base rely on the open office code base, not 
you know, staying up to date and not withering away and dying, which could happen if Oracle just dumped it and all the rest of it. So that would seem to me as an outsider to be the, the motivation to keep the thing going, which is what you're saying, you know, to keep, because they need to keep the upstream going for their product that they're going to sell later on. Uh, uh, but to be very clear about it, they need an upstream that will give them a license that's not copylefted, right? Yeah. They, they had that because Sun slash Oracle, and mostly Sun because Oracle sort of was, was already sort of crumbling the open office uh, situation uh, before, mm. but once they bought uh, Sun. But, uh, mm. but basically that copyright assignment that Sun had from all the developers created an upstream that gave IBM a de facto permissive license in the sense that IBM had an exclusive, semi, sorry, semi-exclusive license from Sun slash Oracle that made sure that they could build Symphony and other proprietary stuff on top of it and, and integrate it in a way that uh, didn't require them to adhere to copyleft terms. Uh, and so, and so what's, what they see, what IBM, IBM is really savvy. They know what's going on and they see, mm. oh, the, 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 the code base, the, the, the sort of center of non-IBM development, non-Oracle development is now centering around copyleft, and that screws our business model. So as a last-ditch effort, let's convince Oracle to permissively license the whole darn thing. Let's put it in the Apache Software Foundation because that has some credibility and, and basically bank on Apache Software Foundation's credibility to try and effectively manipulate developers into contributing under the Apache license instead of under the copyleft license that LibreOffice is already under. Mm. And that's what the public uh, relations messaging is coming out of IBM. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to say, you don't really need copyleft. Come over and contribute in the Apache Software Foundation. You all love the Apache Software Foundation, don't you? Mm. Come on, they're nice guys. They're smart. <laughs> they're friendly. They're they got community cred. Come contribute under that license instead of copyleft. That's what's so. That's what has me angry. That's what I think is insidious. Now, I mean, yeah, I mean, listening to that um, that argument, it makes me wonder what Apache have got to gain out of this. Because as far as I can see, all they're going to do is take the heat for. Uh, for what other people are doing. So I don't see why they would, as you mentioned, they obviously, well, it seems as though they must be smart enough to know what the situation is. So I can't understand why they would openly walk into this, you know, walk in front of a gun basically for IBM and other people because they've got such credibility over the years that they're kind of throwing some of that away. Or so it seems. There are a couple of factors in that. The the first one, which is, uh, I'm not sure which one to say, the one that's kind to Apache Software Foundation or somewhat critical first. Um, The kind one is this. I I think the Apache Software Foundation guys, uh, as they approach the situation, I bet you they had an internal conversation that said, we have to treat this like any other project. We know there's a political situation here, but, but, but from their point of view, if they were to say, no, we won't accept it because it's a political hot potato, right. that would have sort of been out. They basically would have made an exception to their own processes, right? Because it, Apache's processes basically say, if you come to us with a project, if you're willing to relicense it under the Apache license, and if you're willing to put it through our incubator process, we will accept and let you enter the incubator process. And the incubator process is a proving ground for new projects to become part of the Apache Software Foundation. And that, 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 that process is well publicly documented and it's open to everyone. And I think it would have been tough for the Apache Software Foundation to say, no, 
you can't enter this incubator period because you're a political hot potato, because we know you're trying to basically mess with the fork. I think it would have been wrong. Actually, I think it would have been wrong for them to, to refuse in some ways, because I think that I think that that would have killed their credibility of the incubator process. Um, and, uh, and 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 so for that reason, I. I, I think I think they were sort of stuck in their ability, and that's why they're sort of publicly statement, stating this in somewhat of a naive uh, point of view. I think the the more the less friendly answer to that uh, that that, that uh, I probably get emails if any Apache Software Foundation folks listen to this um, is that Apache's always had a, a rather close relationship with IBM. Most people in the free software community won't know this, uh, so I'll tell the story. It's going to take a moment, but I think it's worth it. So so when. Apache Software Foundation was founded. It was actually to make a deal with IBM. So Apache Software, Apache was, uh, obviously people know it as the web server. Uh, yeah. That was what the, the first thing Apache Software Foundation did. In fact, the web server predates it. It was a set of patches to the last free software version released by Netscape because Netscape had a server product. This I'm going back. This is way back. This is about, nine, I'm talking 1995 era stuff. Okay. Netscape had this, uh, it was actually 94, I think, had this uh, web server they sort of threw over the wall because they were developing Netscape in sort of a quasi-free software way initially. And then they, they, got, they got corporate funding and, and, and what's-his-name came in and funded them. And they, they, they basically all went proprietary. So there was this last release of HTTPD that Netscape had put out under a permissive license. And uh, Brian Benelldorf and a few other people were patching it, and they, they, they had made this thing they called a patchy server, um, in the sense that written as A-P-A-T-C-H-Y. Basically, <laughs> oh, they, right, had, yeah. they, had, they had made a bunch of patches to the last Netscape release of HTTPD, and they worked, and they were doing pretty well. And so that this became, as you go into the late 90s, the default server that people were using because it was built on this old code, uh, but had been improved and, and this, this community had gotten together to make patches for it. And it was a patchy server. Um, and that's how they got the name. And so, and so they, 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 they had that out there and IBM wanted to build a product on it because they wanted to enter that this was, this was like web.com era, right? This is 1999, 2000 era. They wanted to make a web server product, which was called WebSphere, if people have heard of. Um, yeah, so, I remember WebSphere. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so there is this class. So I was at the very first, uh, th op it was called, it was the very first OzCon and it wasn't even OzCon yet. It was called, it was a day after the Pearl Conference. O'Reilly ran an event called the Open Source Developer Day in 1998 mm. and there was this panel about about a, a corporate adoption of free software um and open source the term had just been coined most people were still saying free software in those days which i miss those days um, <laughs> but uh, um so 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 there was this there was this panel and basically um brian uh, banaldorf who was who was uh, had, had just started the apache software foundation talked about talking to IBM about their adoption of Apache. And he classically uh, put out this quote that an IBM executive said uh, in a meeting, um, Apache is just a website. How in the hell can I make a deal with a website? <laughs> and that was the classic quote that sort of became why open source had to grow up. Eric Raymond talked a lot about this. Open source needs to grow up. I, I don't really like that phrase, but that yeah. was sort of the sense of, of we needed to build structures and organizations. And Apache Software Foundation was basically launched 
to be able to make a deal with IBM for IBM to adapt, adopt Apache and put it inside WebSphere in the true permissive license way, right? But WebSphere was going to be a proprietary software product and IBM wanted to contribute some of the changes back, but not many uh, and all that sort of thing. So that, mm. was, that was the design of Apache Software Foundation. Uh, that, was, that was how it all came to be. And so there's this relationship with IBM going way back. Yeah, I mean that's interesting. I mean, I I'd never actually re- I can't believe I never realized that the je- the name was almost like a joke. Um, I never really thought about it. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. Um, so th- the thing is, um, at the moment, I mean, I- I've read the blog post that you referenced by uh, Rob Weir, and and uh, it seems as though it's going to take a long time for this uh, to go through the incubator project uh, process, sorry, and all the rest of it. And people are saying it could be a year before we really see this come through the the whole process and so on and become a, a you know a, a proper apache foundation project um so i mean by that time it seems to me that LibreOffice will have come on you know who knows how much further in that time um so we'll end up with these two different code bases um and it, it makes me wonder whether whether the open office code base will still be up to date enough by that time for it to compete you know yeah, I think it's going to be complicated. I mean, this is why the PR machine of IBM is is sort of out there pushing in the community. And I hope people won't be fooled by it. I don't think they will, but maybe. Um, but basically, IBM needs to attract developers in the, in the true uh, Steve Ballmer shouting sense. Yeah. Um, they, they need people to come during the incubator period. Because the thing about the incubation period in Apache is, is the project still goes on. It's not like it just sits there and does nothing. The whole point of the incubation period mm. is to is to show that you have a community of developers who want to contribute and be involved and all that sort of thing. So um, so basically, um, what IBM is going to do, what Oracle is presumably going to do, is they're going to push all the code out under Apache 2.0 license. IBM will probably start feeding uh, the, the typical IBM thing where they feed a few patches, the, the classic WebSphere thing where they give a couple of patches, um, they fix bugs, they do the basics mm. and push stuff out there, but they won't put tons of stuff into it because really what they're focused on is their proprietary forks. Yeah. Uh, but they'll push some things back. Um, and so that, that'll sort of go along there. Now, now what I'm sure LibreOffice is going to try to do, and I hope they do, is try and, try and basically take the best of that and bring it into LibreOffice. Right. So the, the neat thing, and this is a real upside uh, of, of the fact that uh, OpenOffice is LGPL v3, mm. is because Apache license is fully compatible with that, Apache 2.0. So they can bring stuff into the copyleft version and, and sort of uh, combine, assuming, assuming technically they can do that. It's technically tough sometimes when you have two code bases that have diverged to really bring patches back. But hopefully they can. Licensing-wise, it's no problem. So they can keep pulling stuff in. And be a feeder off of off of what what uh, what's happening in the incubation process. Uh, my hope is that they do that. That they basically just drink the milkshake of what anything that gets done in the Apache uh, space. Now, normally, I'm against this kind of activity. I'm yeah. I'm normally against the idea of sitting there and feeding off of a permissively licensed project and pulling it into a copyleft one. My normal position is if a project is permissively licensed uh, in in the spirit of collaboration, even if you're a copyleft person, you should be willing to contribute under permissive license. The reason I'm making an exception to that general rule in this case is because the project was already copylefted and somebody else who happened to be a major copyright holder came along and decided to force uh, permissive license down people's throats. 
because that's the way this this thing played out, I'm taking a different stance than I usually would. I'm saying, look, the the, the, okay. the copyleft guys should just keep taking keep taking code from the Apache guys. So so I think you're I think you're right that LibreOffice is going to keep moving. Not for the reason you said. I, I don't think it's going to be like it's going to sit in the incubation and not nothing's going to happen. I think IBM right, okay, puts some yeah. effort yeah. behind getting code into the Apache licensed version. But I, I think basically they're just going to be a feeder to LibreOffice, and LibreOffice will continue to move forward, as you say. Uh, and and continue to, to to get better. Yeah, but this is something that um, when I was reading through the the ton of comments on that post that, that Rob Weir made, um, that our our kind of our mutual friend Jeremy Allison made the point that about the the fact that because of the licensing situation, um, uh, LibreOffice can take the Apache. Uh, you know the Apache 2.0 license stuff that gets added to OpenOffice codebase and incorporates it, but the same thing can't happen the other way because of the license of LibreOffice. Um, so it seems, yeah, well, a lot of people have kind of trying to promote, and I think um, I don't want to kind of put you know paraphrase what Jeremy said too much because uh, you know uh, he he probably wouldn't like that. But what he seemed to be saying to me was that he he would like to see the OpenOffice people actually collaborate more you know proactively with the LibreOffice uh LibreOffice and actually get together more in that kind of way and uh, yeah as you said he also said something I thought was quite interesting um which is this is a copyleft versus non-copyleft kind of argument and people are trying to say that it's not and trying to say that it's something else but it seems like at the core of it it is the the fact that one license is a copyleft license the other is not and uh, that seems the way it looks to me from the outside anyway I think you're absolutely right. And I think, I think I, I, you'll see me in posting, uh, I'm going to obviously link to this blog uh, post in the show notes. Uh, you'll see me commenting there saying, saying, well said, Jeremy, because I, yeah. I, I think Jeremy yeah. was right on to say this is copyleft versus non-copyleft. Uh, that's what's going on here. I mean, I, I think that, that basically, um, it, I mean, I, I have, I have a rather, uh, it's probably obvious from this show and others that I have a somewhat, uh, a pretty negative view of IBM in most cases. And so I, I think IBM is going to do everything they can, uh, to try and make it difficult for, uh, LibreOffice to make good use of the patches, uh, and uh, that are put into the Apache version. Uh, because I, I think, I think basically their goal is to make sure the copyleft version is not the default. So they don't want to be a feeder in any sort of way. I think Michael Meeks and all the other LibreOffice developers will be happy to collaborate with IBM, um, and happy to, to take the code. And, 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 and I bet you they would even be willing in, in very small cases to give a few patches back, uh, to the permissive licensed one. But they're not going to wholesale just all switch and develop under the permissive license going forward. This is a group of people who want a copyleft. And this is what I was sort of talking about in the last segment, that the, 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 the LGPL, I know the LibreOffice community is somewhat young because they only recently forked, but mm. they forked because they wanted to be – they saw the problems of a copyright assigned um, program to Oracle that was licensed back out under a copyleft. They want a pure copyleft community now. That's the community they want. That's the community they created. Granted, they're only what four, I guess six months old now. Uh, but the thing is, they're a six-month-old community that has a that has a culture, and they have a culture which is which is steeped in fights with Oracle over the licensing. And so they've got a license they want. And 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 for for IBM to say, well, you should just now switch to this license because IBM says so. Um, 
that, that's just disingenuous. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's arrogant and disingenuous in my view. Uh, and I think that I think those two adjectives describe IBM for sort of yeah. completely in my, my mind. Right. Yeah. In your yeah, yeah. yeah. In your your opinion. Yeah. I mean. I, yeah. yeah my, obviously, it's my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, it's an interesting situation. I think. Um, yeah. I mean, this idea that we're going to have two competing code bases. I don't know. I've said on on other shows in the past. Maybe to be honest, I didn't really understand the full implications of. Well, this was before the license change for a start, but I didn't really understand the full implementation. Uh, implement, implications, I know you said implementations, so that's a completely wrong word, uh, of, of this whole si- political situation. But um, from a kind of an end user point of view, if we want to get the best software we can, and hopefully under a copyleft license from my point of view, though everyone wouldn't agree, um, it, would be be- it would be good to see a lot of these developers who are now divided kind of working together more. But the, 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 the actual reality of that is more difficult, because what license do they do they collaborate under? How does it affect? As you said, I'm sure uh, lots of PR stuff would uh, coming out of IBM. It's kind of very easy for them now to say people who are holding out and saying they won't contribute under Apache are just being difficult and they're fundamentalists and they're not uh, being good. You know, not, they're not being good citizens and trying to help the community and stuff. They're just being difficult, and I think that's quite sad, really. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be the first time IBM tried to tried to play this game with with a free software community. It's it's probably not even the third time. Mm. This is this is an IBM tactic. I, I said this in my blog post that IBM really get the open source and free software world. I mean, they really understand it. That's why they're in some ways they're so dangerous because they understand it. They understand how to exploit it as a company mm. in a way that nobody else does. Microsoft has no clue. Apple kind of has no clue on this. Um, they're, they're sort of simplistic in the way that they exploit FreeBSD and, and other other permissively licensed projects. Um, IBM are the real political savvy ones who get it. And I'm so I sort of have a, 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 a I'm impressed by their level of of political savvy. But at the same time, they're 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 just a they they are just basically a worthy adversary, you know, yeah, yeah. because because their their goal is is not the goal of free software at all. Their goal is to to be IBM and and the same IBM they've always been, the same IBM that that my dad told me stories of of uh, of they would put a they would put a special uh, card in your computer that made it run slower, and you bought the upgrade, and all they did was come out and pull out that card. Yeah, um, you know that that's that's the IBM that that's always been. And no matter what sort of friendly face they put on it to the community, that's who they are. And, and, and I think, I think that people have to remember that. That's not to say we can't collaborate, right? I mean, there's lots of cases that IBM's contributed to the Linux kernel, a big contributed to the Linux kernel, which is great. And, and they contribute under GPL and all that sort of thing. And they're, and they're contributed to GCC. They're contributed to lots of free software projects. And they, they assign their copyrights on GCC to, to FSF. Um, so, so they are a contributor and we can, we can take their code and we can appreciate their contributions for what they are. And we can thank them for that. We can say, Hey, this is great that you're doing that. Um, but it doesn't mean that, that every action they take in the free software community is good for the community just because some of them are. And I think people paint these companies uh, with a really broad stroke. And, and I learned from I learned this from RMS actually years ago that you look at every specific action in effectively isolation. You say, is this action that this company is taking good for free software or bad for free software? And, and you analyze each one separately and you thank them for the stuff they're doing that's good and you have to criticize them for the stuff they're doing that's bad. Mm. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I, it makes sense. I mean, so I mean, looking forward, uh, you know, going forward with this. I mean, obviously, when we haven't got a crystal ball, and we're not going to be able to tell the future. But um, I, I'm curious, how, how do you think this this is is likely to play out? Because I can see, you know, a year down the line, um, we're going to have we could end up with two uh, competing product products, as I said, or projects. Um, but obviously, each will be hoping that they will be the, the preferred option and they will, you know, it's like a head-to-head race that they will get ahead of the others and so on. So obviously, I'm, I'm assuming that um, the people behind the Apache uh, Apache version will hope that they're, but by this time next year, all of the LibreOffice or the, the ones that they see as important LibreOffice developers maybe will have decided to, to start contributing under Apache and that will be the default. But I don't know, do, do you think that will happen or do you think we'll end up with two competing Office suites Um with diverging code bases? So uh, so if anybody wants to take bets, um, I, everybody knows I'm a betting fellow, and, yeah. and I, I will lay people. Um, by, we have to come up with some metric, but I would easily lay three to one that LibreOffice will, will be the one that succeeds. Um, and I don't know how you, how you judge that. Um, I, I actually think the biggest judge, and this is the main point I want to make on the, on that question is, 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 is how, how do we know which one's succeeding? I think we, we look at the distributions, the, the GNU Linux distributions, which version they make the default is going to, not only is that going to be the, it's going to be both the litmus test of who's succeeding. And it's also going to be the, 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 the either, um, death march or winning of one of them, right? Because if the distributions are all like sort of behind LibreOffice, obviously Sousa is going to stay behind LibreOffice because they, they invest so much in its development. But when you look at Ubuntu, Fedora, and uh, and Debian, uh, and uh, those will be the sort of the major ones to look at, um, who they stick with, uh, that's going to that's gonna decide. If, if those three, um, because we obviously know Sousa is going to stay with LibreOffice till the bitter end uh, until, I mean, basically they would have to fire the team to switch, I would think. Yeah. Um, but when you look at the, the other three major ones, um, if they stick with LibreOffice for the long term, then, then OpenOffice uh, under Apache has no chance. It'll be an IBM code dump sort of thing that maybe gets a patch or two on occasion. Um, it's just not going to survive. Uh, because the distributions are going to decide uh, that they want to move forward. Also, the LibreOffice guys are are smartly continuing the Windows version to make sure that they because because one thing that could happen is it could split the baby, right? The OpenOffice one could somehow become the standard Windows one, and the one on GNU Linux systems could stay LibreOffice. I think the Document Foundation folks are smart enough to realize they have to keep the Windows version going. I'm not not I don't care about the Windows version, right? I mean, because I'm who I am. But but I think I think that that it's shrewd of them to make sure they have the Windows version. And it's good to, to give people free software on Windows. If people are stuck on Windows, having a free software alternative is good. It's just not my forte. Uh, but I, I think it's really smart that, that LibreOffice has decided we're going to stay cross-platform. Uh, so as long as they do that, I, I think that I think the LibreOffice is 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 they they've, they they're ahead. I mean, they got ahead really fast, and they're going to stay ahead. Uh, I, I think it's going to be tough to catch up to them, especially when basically it's an, it's obviously a thinly veiled IBM mm. uh, plan to get code from people. <laughs> I mean, basically. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned about the, the distributions or major well ma- the major distributions kind of moving towards uh, LibreOffice and swapping and stuff. But I I don't know. This is the discussion that was happening on the comments to that blog post that some people seem to feel that it's an ideological thing and and that's why. But when you look at the comments coming out of the likes of Canonical, you can see it's clear 
clearly not an ideological reason that they've done this. At the time, they thought open open office was going away and it was dead and it was you know whatever. So they kind of moved because they felt they had to. I think as you say, Sousa and Novell is a different case because they're so invested in this. I don't know what to say about Red Hat. I've really no idea. But um, yeah, I think uh, I think it was Rob Weir who, who uh, quoted Mark Shuttleworth's recent comments on his blog there in reply to someone saying, I think Mark Shuttleworth broadly kind of paraphrased and said something like, Sun made this amazing gift to the open source community and certain you know people, groups and factions threw it in their face and made a, a thingy and whatever else. So listening to his kind of rhetoric, he doesn't sound like a guy who's ideologically aligned with LibreOffice in any way to me. So I don't know what they will do. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think you're right. Uh, uh, there's not, uh, I mean, the, 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 this is a classic, a good, po- good point of rhetoric that, that it's kind of correct, right? It is correct that uh, Sun gave a gift uh, by mm. releasing it. And it's a, it's an appreciated gift. I, I think it's great that they released the code base as free software. Um, but it doesn't mean that they get to coast on that achievement, right? We can thank them for the gift, and we we, we did at the time. This is, I mean, this is going back many years now. It's ten years ago, yeah, uh, eleven years ago. Um, we we thanked them for the gift at the time, and and everybody was appreciative that they were released it as free software. But it doesn't mean that they. They, I mean, somebody. I mean, it's uh, uh, analogize it to like normal life, right? Just because somebody you know comes over your house and brings you a bottle of wine, you're like, oh, thank you for this gift. Heck, maybe even if somebody gives you a house, it doesn't, you know, because maybe maybe you could argue that this gift is so good as giving somebody a house. It doesn't mean that like, well, okay, we gave you this house, but but uh, any time you want to make an addition on it, you know, you're gonna need to talk to us, and 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 any time you wanna you know want to hang some pictures on the wall. You're going to have to talk to. I mean, it's sort of like uh, you know. Well, is this really a gift, or am I just your tenant, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, and I think that's sort of what happened. I think that's the best analogy is that is that they gave the house to the community and then said, well, yeah, but you're really just renting the house from us. Um, it's not really like it's a gift to you. And so, and so that's the response that that you're seeing is they 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 it was it was they sort of. They sort of gave a gift with strings attached, and 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 the, and the LibreOffice community finally said no more on that, and that's why the fork happened. Um, and and so and so I I don't I I think it's just as you said it's just rhetoric, and I, I think that the that, that IBM's going to try really hard to to make it seem like that's a community there, but but there's no community there. Oracle already announced they're giving up on Open Office, so so it is an IBM project now housed in the Apache Software Foundation. That that's the long and short of it. Yeah. Yeah, it certainly seems like it. And uh, we're well. Um, I nearly said we'll keep an eye on it, which is my favourite phrase from uh, Linux Outlaws, as you know. Um, but yeah, I think uh, you know we 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 await future developments with interest. But uh, I think we've pretty much exhausted that topic for now. So we should probably uh, move towards towards the end and wrap things up. Uh, yeah, I have. Uh, let's uh, let's do another music thing, and I have one okay. uh, short segment uh, that I want to do with you, uh, and uh, as to finish up, and then we'll, we'll, we're getting close to the end. That's definitely true. Cool. So uh, let's have a quick music break, and uh, we'll be back in a second. So, um, so Dan, I, I just want to because this is uh, th- this was a special case where, where you were were on our show. I, I just mm-hmm. wanted to, and I hope I don't embarrass you with this, uh, oh, but wow. 
I just wanted to tell you, you know, how much Karen and I appreciate all the work you've done to help free and freedom happen. And I'm glad the listeners, uh, obviously they can hear you on your many other podcast endeavors. Um, uh, but, uh, but I'm glad they got to hear you a little bit on the show. And, and I just want the, you know, I listened to your episode 200 of Linux Outlaws that you did with Fab talking about the production. And I, I listen, I, I, I listened very closely to you saying a couple times, well, yeah, the editing's the hardest part. Yeah. The editing's the most work and it takes this many hours to do editing. And, 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 and Karen and I have it kind of easy. We, uh, basically get together once every two weeks. We, we slap down some recordings. It literally just takes the amount of time we're talking. I mean, we, we talk for like 15 minutes before about what we're going to talk about and we just do it. Um, but you do the hard work and, and this is what's made this oddcast happen. And, and since the old show, the software freedom law show we used to do all the way into freeze and freedom, you've been the force that's made this happen. And I just wanted to, with you on the air, uh, well, not air because it's recorded, but, but to, to, to sort of with you here speaking to publicly thank you so much. You make freeze and freedom happen. I, I, I've referenced the silent partner thing. You always have been. You've been the, the, the person that makes it all happen and you do it completely as a volunteer, uh, and always have. And, and it's, it's so appreciated. Karen and I, I know I speak for Karen when I say this that Karen and I really appreciate it. and we just basically if, if you couldn't do it anymore for whatever reason which I would understand your volunteer volunteers move on all the time but basically we'd end the show because we we have no ability to do it without you and which would be fine if you ever have to move on we'd understand but but basically you you are the linchpin uh, it's funny that your last name is Lynch Ooh, uh, <laughs> uh, you are the linchpin of the show uh, yeah, it's yeah. it's it's a fitting name oh well, well thank you very much that's very kind and uh, yeah I mean I, I always enjoy helping out because I think it's a, uh, an important um, an important show and I don't think you know there aren't many other shows that have the certainly the legal knowledge that uh, Karen brings and, and yourself through your experience of of um, you know many years with FSF and, and then SFLC and now at Conservancy and so on so I think it's really important and, and as far as the editing thing goes I have to confess it's far easier I don't know whether it's yeah I don't know why but it's always far easier for me to edit uh, this show than it is to edit Linux Outlaws. It takes a lot longer to edit Linux Outlaws. I think it's probably because um, when you're kind of personally involved in something and your voice is on it as well, you worry more about every little phrase being right and cutting out every time you say um or you have a break or something. Um, that's not to say that I don't edit intensively as much as I can with with you know and make it as good as I can when I do Freeze and Freedom. But it's definitely a lot easier. So I mean, it, it's not too bad. It takes a couple of hours every every couple of weeks. So I mean, it's it's no great great hardship, and I, I enjoy helping out so no problem yeah, well, we, we definitely really appreciate it. We do our best to sort of do it uh, in just a few takes and, and make sure that there's sort of just a couple of segments that need to be pasted together to make the editing job mm. as easy as possible. We do we do think about that every time. We're sort of like, well, if we do it this way, will it be harder to edit? We always try to think of that uh, to make it easy on you. Uh, but uh, but but all the same, it's it's still work regardless, no matter how much we try to make it easy. So so we just really appreciate it. And, and I'm glad the listeners got to enjoy you as a, as a co-presenter for a while. And, uh, and, uh, and I guess you'll go back to being our, our silent partner but i want the listeners to know that that uh that that that, that you are uh, you are the thing that, that as a producer that makes this this thing actually work <laughs> oh thank you it's very kind and uh, yeah as you say I, i'm sure i'll return to being a silent partner but who knows maybe sometime in the future if the universe needs me i'll come back <laughs> you know there's some sci-fi reference there somewhere i'm sure <laughs> when the time is right well and particularly with uh in the last show you were asking me some really uh really good uh, hard pointed questions which i think were, were helpful to the listeners people did uh give feedback they liked that show okay. so uh so if you ever want to come back and and sort of if there if there's a topic uh that's sort of free as in freedom 
uh, topic list related, you know, policy, free software policy, ethics, morality, legal, you know, those sort of things that we cover, organizational, that stuff that, that Karen and I are, that's our bailiwick. If you have a topic you want to ever come back and, and we can always, I mean, we got the setup now all working. Uh, Karen, Karen could be sitting next to me if she weren't off, uh, off on her vacation. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so we could always do that, uh, with you in this way. If you ever want to, if you ever have a topic, you should let us know and, and we'll, we'll have you on and you can grill us about some topic of your interest and, and give us your thoughts. So, so you have a you have an open invitation to be uh, to be a third co-host, a uh, third presenter, anytime you want. Uh, we'd always welcome you. Well, I'll, I'll definitely keep it in mind. As I said, as well, um, I think uh, I mean obviously on Linux Outlaws, we don't really have any any legal knowledge of, of these kind of subjects. We just kind of talk about talk about them from our perspective. So it's good to have a, a, a you know a more inside thing. But I think we're in danger of um, of making everyone throw up all over their portable <laughs> media players right now if we keep it, keep going on about how fantastic. Yeah. I, I, so, I, I, I didn't want. I didn't want to turn this into a mutual appreciation society <laughs> yeah, or anything. Yeah. But uh, but that's why I saved it for last uh, as the final segment. But uh, but uh, since you were on you were on the show, I wanted to really publicly thank you in a way. Uh, we have publicly thanked you before, obviously. But mm. uh, but I, I wanted to thank you with you here uh, being able to respond because because we we do appreciate it so much. And, and the listeners should know that that, that 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 they hear my and Karen's voice uh, most of the time, uh, uh, but almost all the time uh, as it turns out. But. Uh, but it's really, it's really without producer Dan, there there wouldn't be a freeze and freedom. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, I suppose I consider myself more of a proxy in that situation than anything too more involved, <laughs> but uh, much, much more involved. But yeah, it's very cool. So um, Karen will be back uh, next time, and uh, yep. I I don't know. I don't know if you've decided what you're going to talk about, but I'm sure it'd be fun. <laughs> I haven't talked to Karen in weeks because uh, she's been away. So, uh, so we'll figure it out when she gets back. And uh, I hope it'll be of interest uh, to, to folks when, uh, when we have our next show. Cool. So, yeah, stay tuned. And, and uh, don't forget, you can always go to, um, to faith.us and find uh, you know, notes on the show and links to the stuff that we talked about today and, and in other shows uh, that uh, Bradley and Karen talk about. There's always lots of links there. And uh, what's the feedback address if people want to send emails and stuff? It's uh, augcast at fif. Dot US. And they'll probably hear Karen's voice say that at the end, little end segment. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I, for, I forgot that because I'm so used to having to do the, the wrap up on, on Linux Outlaws where we do the whole. Well, I, 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 I missed the. Can... Uh, what was his name? The, the festival voice guy? Uh, oh, the yes. Hawkman? Yeah, the Hawkman. Yeah, I miss, I miss it. I, mean, <laughs> yeah, when you right. guys, I remember listening to one show where you guys were like, we're going to retire the Hawkman now. I miss oh, yeah, yeah. like that. I think, yeah, well, maybe he'll come back. Maybe he'll come back. Uh, 2.0. A version 2.0 of him might come back. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, it's been a, been a pleasure talking to you as always. Uh, so stay tuned for another free as in freedom in a couple of weeks. Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of HalfBakedMedia.com. Thanks to Mike Tarantino for our theme music. Free as in Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 Unported License. Please provide any feedback to Obcast at FAIF.us. Cool. All right. Well, I think everything's okay here. I've switched my switched my phone off uh, so we don't get any interference. Is there? Um, sounds like I can hear like a train or something going past.
Oh, something. There's a noise. Oh, I wonder if that's my laptop fan. Um, I'll try to move further away. My mic's further away from the... It's, oh. it's probably... My laptop is really loud. Oh, right, okay. It sounded <laughs> a little bit like, I don't know, like a, an underground... Ele- you know, those electric trains going fast? Um, oh, it could be. Well, I actually can vaguely hear the subway here, but I don't... Th- no, I don't you wouldn't get it as loud as, as that, I don't think. Yeah. 